you are listening to Poldark Fancast, a podcast about the Poldark saga hosted by us. My name is Rita. I live in England. I Tumblr at Princess of Poldark and I tweet at Rita Bites. And my name is Michelle. I live in the States. Uh, you can find me on Tumblr at Poldark Muses and I tweet at Musings. And in this week's fancast, we'll be recapping and discussing episode 505, which aired this past Sunday night on BBC One. So if you haven't seen the episode and are trying to avoid spoilers, then this is not the podcast for you yet. Come back when you've seen the episode. As for the rest of us, let's dive into a recap of the episode. Buckle up, kids. Here we go. It was Christmas time at Nampara, and all the gang and extended family got together to sing, drink, eat, and of course, conspire to send Ned back to Honduras. It's fair to say he has outstayed his welcome, and Roz is packing him and Kitty off on a coach to London ASAP. Caroline and Dwight follow him into the city so Dwight can keep an eye on the impending disaster, but left behind in Cornwall is Demelza and the kids. But fear not, she is not sitting around waiting for Ross. She has work to do. And the first thing she does is to see to getting finance for the new school. She enlists the help of her reluctant brother, Preacher Karn, to help take in donations. She then visits Pasco, who tells her that due to a lack of gold, that damn pesky Napoleonic War, the Cornish bank, for which he works, has been obliged to issue paper notes instead of coin. After explaining very slowly how paper notes work to her and where the watermark of authenticity is, the Melza is on her way with the notes to pay her miners. Over in London, Ross and Ned are begging Mr. Wickham, no, not that Mr. Wickham, for his position in Honduras back. Unfortunately for them, the Prime Minister, Pitt the Younger, has just quit, in protest over the King's refusal to grant Catholic emancipation. So his successor will be Henry Addington, and Ross and Ned make plans to petition him as soon as they can. But before all that, Dwight begs Ross to reconsider... Surely you can see that continuing to champion a man who assaulted a member of parliament could severely compromise you. Ross blows him off in favour of his new bestie and immediately goes to see Joseph Merceron, the magistrate overseeing Ned's case in hopes of getting him to help Ned's cause. What's Ned doing to help his cause? Getting drunk at Vauxhall and blabbing to anyone who walks by about how he could single-handedly help eradicate slavery an exaggeration, and shouting that the king is mad, not an exaggeration. And when Ross tries to quieten him, he blows him off, saying that he has nothing to lose. We shall see about that. There's a lot of blowing off of people. People ain't listening to each other. Classic Poldark. Back in Cornwall, it's payday, and the villagers are freaking the fuck out about the paper money, stirred on by Tess, of course, because I guess now she is unemployed, she can focus on her real passion of being a massive bitch to Demelza. She teams up with fellow baddie Jacka, and together they come up with a scheme to forge more notes. George is also in London, and now, thanks to Dwight, more evil than ever. (laughs) He and Ralph Hansen are socialising again in the hopes of finally signing that contract. Ralph wants to introduce him to his partner of the Mosquito Shore Mahogany Company. It's about frickin' time we learnt who that creepy shadowy figure with the falcon was, huh? Well, it turns out... It was Joseph Merceron. The magistrate Ross kept going to for help. (sighs) Poor foolish Ross. 
He's even more evil than Ralph and blithely reads a letter from their overseer on the plantation about how slaves were being denied water to quicken their death and shrugs. So? Dick. The dumbass then leaves said letter out on Ralph's desk and Cecily, human angel, steals it. Parliament has tabled a debate on slavery. Ralph encourages George to speak out in defense of owning slaves and protect his future investments. At first... George is reluctant. Unlike some persons, I'm not so enamoured with the sound of my own voice as to be constantly braying out opinions. Hmm. I wonder to whom he is referring. But anyway, after some flattery and a casual reminder of how much money he would lose if slaves were liberated, George is convinced to speak. Ralph leaves the room to receive Geoffrey Charles, who has come to beg for Cicely's hand in marriage. It doesn't go well. Get out of my house, you idiot. (laughs) When Ralph returns to the room he left George in, he immediately tells him of Geoffrey Charles' intentions, and so George, back to his mustache-twirling best, is like, let's set a date for the wedding. Following his terrible proposal, Geoffrey Charles is accused of stealing from a fellow cadet and is turfed out of his military academy. Cecily, bless her, has to explain to him that it is no accident and that her father set that up. She says they have no choice but to drive a wedge between Sir George and Ralph, so she takes that letter she stole and hands it over to Ross so that he has evidence in his abolition speech. Morwenna has been sneaking to see John Conan some more, because apparently children are never supervised on this show. (laughs) And Drake tells her he knows where she's been, because he stalks her sometimes, slash all the time. (laughs) They talk about how difficult it is for her to say goodbye to him each time, and even though Morwenna doesn't give any indication that she wants him to, Drake barges over to Lady Whitworth's and begs her to let them take in John Conan. Lady Whitworth is like, uh, no, and gets her servants to lock him in the stables. Drake attacks those servants, who were like, just doing their jobs, oh my god, these poor people, And instead, Drake decides, and I can't overstate the stupidity here, to kidnap John Conan. Oh, God. Um, So when Demelza sees John playing with her children on the beach, she yells at Drake to take him back. Morwenna gave up her rights to the child when she gave her to Lady Whitworth, and a court would never rule in Morwenna's favor. Drake manages to sneak him back just as Lady Whitworth calls out a search party, and he somehow gets away with it. He tells Morwenna what he did, and she, understandably, freaks out at him. The next morning, she goes to say goodbye to John forever. Lady Whitworth sees her sneaking in and goes to remove her from her land, but is overcome with a miraculous case of benevolence and allows Morwenna to hug John goodbye. That night, on their tiny bed, Morwenna explains to Drake that her heart is now free to love him. And don't worry, we're going to get into that in just a little bit. Okay, it's speech time. First up is the Honourable Member of St. Michael. Sir George's speech is a racist mess, where he rationalises that the hard labour necessary for the production of mahogany is more suited to the Africaidus Niger or whatever the fuck he thinks that is, breed of man, which does not exist, and cites madman Carl Linnaeus as, quote, proof. The fact is, slavery 
is a necessity for our economy, for the preservation of our colonies, and for the supremacy of our nation in the world. So George has gone full white supremacist and lost all of the goodwill he built up over the season. Bye, bitch. (laughs) Throw the whole man away. Following his speech, Ross is naturally the first man up to refute his claims, quoting from the overseer's letter about the, quote, groves of death, end quote, in Honduras, where slaves dying from malaria are denied medical assistance and water. He even manages to slip in a plea to return Ned to Honduras and stamp out such brutality. Following his speech, Ross gets a resounding ovation and George is denounced. Ross is the hero and George is the villain. The only solution to this, Merceron says, is to make Ross the villain. And he can do that for George in exchange for his signature. A literal deal with the devil? Meanwhile, back in Cornwall, Sam is still collecting money for the school, and the villagers are handing over their notes by the plenty. Unfortunately, he and Demelza soon work out that the majority in circulation are forgeries. Zaki Martin tells Demelza that Tess has been spreading the forgeries, so she goes into the local tavern and gives her own rousing speech. Demelza tells everyone that there is a forger in their midst, screwing people like Sally Chiloff and the other merchants in town out of their hard-earned money. She doesn't call Tess out, but does say that whoever it is should stop because if Demelza finds one more forgery, she is going to the authorities, and lest there be any doubt, forgery is a hanging offense. Dramatic zoom in on Tess's face. <laughs> okay, so Merceron's plan to defame Ross and Ned is to plant a treasonous oath of loyalty in the form of a pamphlet. Pharaoh will endeavour to the utmost of his power to obtain the objects stated in this oath. Overturn the king's veto and grant Catholic emancipation at whatever cost. Now being found with such an oath would mean immediate imprisonment. It's not a terrible plan because in all honesty... It sounds like something Ned would possess anyway. Mm-hmm. In fact, while Merceron's preparing all this, Ned is at Vauxhall, drunk off his ass, and yelling about the king being mad again. Kitty is begging him to refrain himself and failing. Dwight tells Ross that he needs to get him out of there, that he's putting his wife in danger, but Ross, again, is deaf to any criticism. Why do I think you resent it? As far back as James River, I sensed a cooling out of sensed is a lack of adoration. A refusal to follow him blindly into whatever reckless adventure he chose to plunge himself, taking you with him. And you recollect he saved my life? I recollect that he dragged you from the battlefield and dumped you on a surgeon's table. The life-saving portion fell to someone else. Uh, mic drop! Ross, <laughs> you've been troubled. <laughs> oh, most awesome part of the series yet (laughs) let's see bored with getting pissed at Vauxhall Ned decides to toddle off to the Oakley Arms a pub with a horde of like-minded radicals where he can get even more drunk and even more belligerent one of the men he is raving to is one of Merceron's spies who is tasked with planting the oath on him meanwhile at Ross's lodgings Merceron's men are planting the oath under his mattress. Luckily for him, Caroline has a word to Dwight about remaining Ross's friend when he needs him most. Yes, even when he is being a flaming idiot. So she and Dwight 
go to Ross's lodgings. They find some suspicious-looking men lurking there and assume something has been done to Ross's lodgings. After searching the place, Dwight and Caroline find the oath. Back at the pub, Ross has had enough of listening to Ned and his mates talk about blowing up the king and decides to intervene and bring Ned home. Ned, being the drunken dickhead he is, elbows Ross in the face. No, no face! No! Take the wig instead. The blow seems to finally knock some sense into him and he leaves Ned to get drunk. Officers barge into Ross's home and the pub looking for the oaths. Ned gets lucky when the oath stuffed in his back pocket falls out, but ends up being an idiot anyway and punching an officer in the face, so he's taken away. (sighs) Meanwhile, Caroline oversees the search of Ross's room like a boss, getting them to tidy up after themselves, and she gets them to sign a statement saying that they found nothing. Hashtag queen. Yes! Uh, Jeffrey Charles and Cecily meet at Vauxhall in masks. It's all very Romeo and Juliet. She has considered their situation, and now there is only one solution. Uh, cliffhanger much? Back in Ross's chambers, and he is finally admitting that while being brave and principled, Ned is a hot fucking mess and that his recklessness will be his undoing. He and Dwight agree to send Ned off on the first ship to Jamaica to get him away from trouble. Unfortunately, trouble has already found him, and Kitty bursts into the door crying. The episode ended with Demelza singing her babies to sleep. I wish Papa were here. So do I, my love. But Papa must see to important matters in London. Da-da-da! So did you like the episode? Honestly, not particularly. Or I should say there were parts that annoyed the hell out of me, enough to color any enjoyment I may have gotten from the scraps that came our way. I loved Demelza dealing with the bullshit over the bills and Sam poking her into action. Love, Sam. Uh, Love Dwight and Caroline's actions in London. But sweeping George's mental health situation completely under the rug without any transition from what we saw in 505 to Dooshlegan 2.0 this week. The lack of logic around Drake and Morwenna's storyline in particular really shook me clean out of the episode while I attempted to riddle my way through the logic. See, I, I think I liked it a lot better on rewatching, but I agree that there are some major issues with some of the storylines I think what I liked about the episode was all the political maneuvering following Pitt's resignation. I kind of Mm -hmm. wish we could have focused on that rather than watching Ned get drunk and scream, the king is mad, every five minutes. Yeah. Uh, And I loved everything with Melza and her handling of that crisis. That was good. Yeah. Okay, so it's time for historical fact-checking. First up, Catholic Emancipation. Yeah, Catholic emancipation was a major plot point of this episode, so I think we should talk about the movement. Bearing in mind, I don't have the time or the inclination to give you the whole Irish-English backstory. I mean, that would be its own podcast series. Yeah. Catholic emancipation was a process in the kingdoms of Great Britain and Ireland in the late 18th century and early 19th century that involved reducing and removing many of the restrictions on Roman Catholics introduced by the Act of Uniformity, which established the Book of Common Prayer as the only legal form of worship, the Test Acts, which meant that only Church of England followers were eligible for public appointment, 
and the Penal Laws, which banned intermarriage between Catholics and Protestants, barred Catholics from holding firearms or serving the armed forces, barred them from Parliament, barred them from voting, banned custody of orphans being granted to Catholics, banned them owning a horse valued at over £5. Weird. (gasps) Banned them from teaching or becoming a lawyer, and my personal favourite law, the property tax. Catholic inheritance of lands were to be equally subdivided between all owner's sons, with the exception that if the elder son and heir converted to Protestantism, then he will become the one and only tenant of the estate. So super fair. Holy crap. Okay, the first relief act called the Papist Act was passed in 1778, subject to an oath renouncing Stuart claim to the throne and the jurisdiction of the Pope. It allowed Roman Catholics to own property and to inherit land. Since the electoral role at the time was largely determined by owning property, this relief gave the votes to Roman Catholics holding land with a rental value of £2 a year. A second Relief Act of 1782 allowed the establishment of Roman Catholic schools and bishops. They also started to gain access to many middle-class professions with which they had been excluded, such as the legal profession, grand jurors, universities, and the lower ranks of the army and judiciary. The issue of greater political emancipation for Catholics was again considered in 1800 at the time of the Act of Union between Great Britain and Ireland, which united Great Britain and Ireland to create the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. I know that's confusing, but previously to that, there had just been a single union between the United Kingdom and Ireland. It was not included in the text of the Act, however, because this would have led to greater Irish Protestant opposition to this union. (coughs) It's messy. So William Pitt the Younger, the Prime Minister, had promised Catholic emancipation to accompany this act. However, because King George III opposed the act, thinking that it would violate his coronation oath, and for clarification, it kind of would have, the monarch is also the head of the church in the UK, and allowing Catholics the same rights would have been a bit messy. Uh, Pitt resigned as he was unable to fulfil his pledge. Catholic emancipation then became a debating point as seen in this episode, but it would take almost 30 more years for full emancipation. Oh, God. And it's really fun reading this knowing that, as a Catholic, I would have been fucked. (laughs) Yes, you would have been. Yeah, it was not a very friendly place to be if you were Catholic back in those days. Uh, Now for paper banknotes. Demelza's entire storyline this week hinged on the concept of new paper banknotes. In fact, paper currency was first developed in the Tang Dynasty uh, in China during the 7th century, although true paper money did not appear until the 11th century during the Song Dynasty. European explorers introduced the concept to Europe during the 13th century, and Napoleon famously issued paper banknotes in the early 1800s. The perception of banknotes as money has evolved over time. Originally, money was based on precious metals. Banknotes were seen by some as an IOU, or promissory note, a promise to pay someone in precious metal, but were readily accepted for convenience and security. The first bank to initiate permanent issue of banknotes was the Bank of England. 
Established in 1694 to raise money for the funding of the war against France, the bank began issuing notes in 1695 with the promise to pay the bearer the value of the note on demand. They were initially handwritten to the precise amount and issued on deposit or as a loan. By 1745, standardized printed notes ranging from £20 to £1,000 were being printed. And, you know, this is, you know, it's not the first time that we've seen, you know, paper being used for money. Hell, it was in the pilot, technically. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they've been doing this forever. I think that, you know, in this case, you know, it's the first time that folks in the, uh, I I hate to use this term, but in the lower classes, uh, the, the, the commoners were seeing paper notes on a regular basis. So... You know, I, I mean, I loved the storyline, so um, uh, I really appreciate having that historical information uh, to kind of just add to the color of what we saw. One of my fav- favorite moments of the episode was when, oh, Demelza said, oh, this, it has the amount on the paper, just read it. And Tess was like, I can't read. Yeah. And I was thinking, yeah. you're handing over all these notes to a bunch of people who cannot read them and do not know their value. It's de- how depressing. Yep. Oh, boy. So let's dig into those storylines. The Ned Rost White Caroline mess. I have never been more Team Dwight in my life. <laughs> when he was yes. telling Rost that he saved his life and not Ned, I let out a full-blown <laughs> fuck yes. No shame. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, what the? Like, oh, he carried you. Big deal. That didn't save your life. If Dwight wasn't there, you would have died. Anyway. Exactly. I'm so tired of Ross's championing of Ned to the detriment of his relationship with Dwight. I think he takes advantage of Dwight's loyalty sometimes, and he should listen when he's giving him advice. Like when he was like, hey, don't do this whole jewel thing. It's a terrible idea. But he did it anyway. Yeah. Anyway, after getting hit in the face, I think Ross finally worked it out. But then, hey, maybe not. In the preview, he was talking about jailbreak, and that's so fucking dangerous and stupid that I can't even begin to even with Ross at this point. What else does he oh, need to happen? God. I... Well, you know, I think that, you know, instead of a bingo card, we should have just had, like, a trope card for uh this season of Poldark uh because you know we're talking about a jailbreak we've already had two of those um we are talking about uh you know what else um oh pamphlets this is what the third time that pamphlets defaming um or Ross or getting Ross in trouble uh, that that's been pulled out of a hat. Um, or actually, we had, we've had pamphlets twice in this episode, sorry, in this series. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the whole thing with Ross and his loyalty to Ned at the expense of his own personal safety, um, I'm, I'm sick of it. I'm just sick of it. I don't feel like Ned, his relationship with Ned has been established enough for him to be this gung-ho. This loyal. Yeah, I mean, to, for him to be this frickin' loyal. Um, you know, I think, I think if, you know, we had had or had seen some other evidence of their connection beyond 
what we saw in the first episode with the flashback, um, that that might have helped. But, you know, maybe with them fighting, um, you know, another group of uh, the uh, Continental soldiers or something along those lines, it would have helped to establish that relationship better. But uh, I'm not sure that even a flashback could have done it, though, because we're talking about a relationship that they he has not spoken about or anything in 17 years of this show. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good point. But, you know, Ned's been in Honduras all this time. So, you know, it's not something that uh, probably would have come up in casual conversation or even planned conversation in the show uh, pre, you know, prior to now. But anyway, I totally agree with you. Uh, about the lack of um, solidifying this relationship to the point that Ross making all of these crazy decisions uh, about Ned, uh, that it would make sense. So, anyhow, uh, but uh, Team Dwight, oh, hell yeah. <laughs> hell yeah. Um, I think we need some kind of um, merch uh, with. Uh, Dwight, Caroline, and Horace, like, <laughs> like Team Ennis. Oh, <laughs> they are our superheroes. So, literally fighting crime as we speak. Exactly. So, with regards to Demelza and the banknotes, um, you know, at least this was a banking plot line that was much more entertaining than the last one we had. <laughs> oh, for sure, and so much easier to follow. <laughs> yeah. I think this is the best storyline for me of the night. I really enjoyed Demelza stepping into a leadership position and trying to better the community. And the way she handled Tess was perfect for me. I know that we all really hate Tess, but I think going to the authorities without warning her would have been a bit too extreme, seeing as how fond of capital punishment the law was. Mm-hmm. Um, a warning did the job just fine and... Every scene she had with Sam was just delightful. They have a wonderful energy on screen. I felt like the scene the scene when they were holding them up to the light, I was like Yes. Are they are they yes. like in some kind of buddy comedy with uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah, I saw a uh screen cap of that scene where they're both holding the notes up and they both have this like identical expression on their face. This <gasps> And and it's like their eyes are huge and they're just like, <gasps> and uh, it, it was adorable. I, I love seeing them on screen. They really are have become like brother and sister vibes. Mm-hmm. It's cute. Yeah. <sighs> Speaking of, let's talk about their brother. Oh my God. <laughs> the other brother. <laughs> Drake, oh. Morwenna, and the kidnapping. And uh, kidnapping aside which uh, I think we don't even have to get too far into the kidnapping because I think we all universally agree that it was the stupidest thing that fool Drake could have done. But with that aside, am I to understand that by giving up her child, Morwenna is now ready to bow chicka wow wow with Drake? Apparently. Seriously, I was thoroughly confused by the logic of this whole thing. I mean, 
I thought her reticence was because she'd been systematically raped by Ozzy for years. So I'm going to have to say, what the effity F, Debbie? You've got to explain this to me in order for this to work. Especially oh, she just after... wanted to add like a neat little bow to that story. Then, like they're gonna have oh. sex. It's okay. <laughs> oh, and it just basically um, obliterates all of what Morwenna has been saying about why she is. I mean, she's basically said that she's unclean, that she can't, you know, handle the 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 touch of another man because of what. Um, Ozzy did to her, you know, all of what she has developed in her, in that character development is just, it's gone. It turns out she was lying for like oh, above a year. Honestly. Let's circle back to the kidnapping though, because that was one of the most idiotic <laughs> things I've seen on this show. And the bar is pretty fucking high in that respect. <laughs> Drake has the impulse control and the intelligence of a child. In fact, I think John Conan probably could have taught him a thing or two. The most worrying thing about it for me is that his stupidity actually felt really in character. (laughs) I was like, yes, this is what Drake would do. And I swear to God, I don't get why or how Winner can love this doofus. She's far too good for him. Sometimes I feel like she is mothering him. Oh, God. It, it it was really, honestly, it was sloppy. It was sloppy writing. Let's have less of that. Please. Let's have less Drake Morwenna so we don't have to think about how terrible the storyline has become. Please. Uh, have them just stare at the cliff some more. That was the, <laughs> that's what they can handle. Oh, God. Um, isn't it funny how we're wishing that we had more cliff staring with these two? <laughs> It turns out when they get actual storylines, it's quite bad. Yeah. Let's uh, dive into the George, Hanson, and Merceron um, storyline. I'm kind of of disappointed in myself that I didn't see the Merceron plot twist coming. (laughs) I know. The actor was way too good to just be a random magistrate. (laughs) And he kept just popping up over and over again. (laughs) But I didn't even think about it because the Ned plot annoys me so much. (laughs) Same. Same. I mean, that was Ugh. that was brilliant. I mean, I it, it was one of those moments that that rarely happen for me when I'm watching uh, television or a movie where I utter an audible gasp at the the uh, revelation. It was like, oh, no. <laughs> so, bravo on on that one. Uh, that was great. As for Georgia's speech in Parliament, I kind of found that to be a bit much personally (laughs) george as a villain is a success when he remains in the gray blurry lines between right and Mm -hmm. wrong and this newfound love of slavery feels off from his characterization in the novels Mm -hmm. to me george has always felt like a true banker above all he likes hedging his bets and never being seen to take a risk yeah Everything about Ralph Hansen and that speech screamed risky. (laughs) And as you mentioned before, Michelle, it's a huge and abrupt change from last week. You could get whiplash trying to keep up with these characters. No, I I totally agree with you. Um, The the speech was just nauseating. 
it was nauseating, really, really hard to hear. But that's the way things are for me anytime I'm watching a show that, that has anything to do with, um, you know, the, the slavery debate or Jim Crow or anything along those lines. It's just, it's really hard to, to hear. I also wonder, like, what the point of it is, like, if that makes sense. Like, is there going to be any resolution to how uncomfortable this is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I... Is it just dredging it up for the sake of it, or is there going to be some kind of conclusion to this? Because I tell you now, guess what? Slavery was not abolished that in the year 1801. Yeah. So where are we going with this? Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean... There have been a whole lot of bows tied on storylines. Um, I am wondering what kind of bow we're going to get with this one. So, okay, let's talk about something that is much more enjoyable. Um, a ship that we are firmly crewing for. G-Cecily. Jeffrey oh, Charles, my sweet summer child. <laughs> What on earth were you thinking going to Ralph? <laughs> that was obviously going to make things worse. <laughs> also, every time he called himself a gentleman, I laugh. <laughs> He's barely 17 years old, everyone. <laughs> oh my god, he really can't be anyone's husband yet. No. That's ridiculous. No. He's got a whole lot of growing up to do. Um, I don't think he could grow a beard if he wanted to. <laughs> Oh, poor baby. Um, yeah, I uh, uh, I love these guys so much, and it's it is just it is not going to end well. And I I know that I'm just getting far too invested in uh, their story, um, and know that I'm just going to be brought down to my knees at any moment. Um, and I loved Cecily. And her uh, <laughs> her efforts to try and thwart her father. Um, I just, I, I love her so much. I love her so much. She's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, as far as favorite scene goes, um, it the name is Carolite. Carol Light. <laughs> Cue the Bond theme <laughs> for these two. Um, oh, my God. I love them so much, I can't stand it. Uh, Dwight and Caroline were in rare form uh, during this episode, and it was so nice to see them doing something more than being segue fodder for uh, the other storylines uh, moving within the, the, the series. Yeah, I remember tweeting out during my live tweet that Dwight and Caroline were using this as a form of foreplay. <laughs> yes. Yes. Here for it. I mean, there, there were some, there were some admire, I can't even use English this morning, um, but <laughs> the looks of admiration that the two of them had during the scene, you were magnificent. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, oh God, you guys are so awesome. So I just awesome. want them to go on like mystery adventures together because there was a whole section where they were like pretending to look at the stool but really looking down the the street to the mm-hmm. people inside and I was like they could be really great solving some crimes maybe a murder mystery because <laughs> Dwight could do the 
biopsy or the autopsy and then Caroline would be like the street smart. Yes. Oh it would be God. great. Like somebody write that show. <laughs> Please do. Please do. Uh, so yeah, that was my favorite. My favorite scene was the one where Sam and Zaki were building up Demelza's confidence. It yes. reminded me of a similar scene with Demelza and Francis. Oh, yes. You know, the popular quote of Elizabeth has was born to be admired and I was born to pull turnips comes to mind because mm-hmm. Demelza has earned her admiration from the men surrounding her. Not by being beautiful and graceful, though she is, but by being smart and kind and knowing how to handle a crisis. She yeah. handles shit. She is a boss. Mm-hmm. Hashtag queen. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what was your least favorite scene? Oh, the scene where George is speaking in Parliament and uttering those abominable words that we discussed during uh, episode three. And, you know, like I said, it it honestly made me sick to my stomach. Um, it was, that was my, that was it for me. Um, mine was more when everyone drinks weird bedroom scene for its sheer what the fuckness. Yeah. Uh, just terrible writing. How is saying goodbye to her child for a second time? Because let's not, you know, mm-hmm. she's done it before. That manages to break down her PTSD from rape. Does that make any sense at all to anybody? No. Please write in. Just please no. write in with your explanations because I don't know what the fuck is going on there. It, it it makes no sense, but I will be, I will be entertained um, if someone is able to explain this to me. Yeah. Um, performance of the week. Uh, well, uh, we were right. No more BAFTA concussions for Jack Farthing this week. At least none for me. Um, <laughs> uh, those awards go to Luke Norris and Gabriella Wilde, as well as. Uh, the pug playing Horace uh, for their great scenes this week. And especially, especially Luke's uh, uh, tongue lashing of Ross. That was, that was oh, fantastic. That felt good. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know, man, I would consider what Jack Farthing had to do when given that speech incredibly difficult to do. <laughs> I would have been cringing through it myself. So props. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, all my love goes to Luke Norris too this week. He really brought so much to the table when talking to, when taking Ross down a peg. Yeah. He really felt his hurt when he was rejected. And he was so cute with Caroline. You were magnificent. I die. <laughs> yeah, Luke, Luke was absolutely awesome this week. Absolutely awesome. Um, How many tricones would you give this episode? 2.5. There, I said it. I'm giving it a three. While terribly written in parts, I'm looking at you, Moana Drake, and George's abrupt change of personality. I really did feel like it was an incredibly watchable episode with lots of drama and twists we didn't see coming to keep you intrigued, if not very intellectually satisfying. Mm. Is that you're just like, what the fuck is this? Um, yeah. So yeah. over on uh, Twitter. 31% of you gave it five tricorns. Mm. 19% gave it four tricorns. Uh, 27% gave it three tricorns. That's a bump. 23% gave it two tricorns. So <laughs> it's fair to say you all kind of agreed with us that it was a bit 
of a major step down. Yeah. Very dodgy episode. Um, so in Critics' Corner, this week's quote uh, comes from our favorite, uh, Louise Mellor from Den of Geek. How do you solve a problem like Nidespard? <laughs> uh, less a moonbeam in your hand than a dickhead in your guest room. <laughs> uh, no matter how many times Ross used his new, have a care, Ned, catchphrase, a care is the one thing Ned would resolutely not have, and look where it got him. Merceron and Hansen may have sprung the trap, but Despard strode straight inside. Good riddance. After five weeks of Rossing... Uh, Rossing? Rossing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, after five weeks of watching Ross pull on Ned's reins and say, Whoa, boy, it was becoming repetitive. Ned went everywhere, swinging and swigging like a fairground boxer, with Ross as his corner man in the ring, squirting energy drinks into the side of his mouth and patting him down with a towel. Slavery is an abomination, Ned yelled at a marble fountain. The king is mad, he bellowed at lampposts. Ned's not wrong on either count, of course. Slavery is an abomination, and King George III was so far out of his gourd had Columbus discovered the gourd by this point, uh, that they even made that film about it. Prowling about London's three night spots, the garden with the jugglers, the room where they play cards and drink, out, drink wine out of thimble-sized glasses, and the Oakley Arms, spilling your special brew in everyone's lap and leaving no hornet's nest unkicked, though, is the work of a prize prong. Think of Kitty, man. Hasn't she been through enough? So now it's time for our inbox section. Woot woot. Thanks to everyone who wrote in. Um, oh my goodness, yes. So first we'll start off on Instagram. And again, people, can you come up with names I can <laughs> say? FP1171. <laughs> Finally got some quality Caroline content. As Dwight said, she was magnificent. Sam also got some screen time. For me, best episode of the series by far. Black Allison said, Wow, screaming at the telly as per usual. What an episode, by the way. Oh, I hope Ross gets away from Ned. He is a troublemaker with alcohol in him. Loose lips, he should be called. Dolphin Sal 69 said, Good to have some Caroline and Morwenna time and loved the family meal scene with Prudy et al. They should have had made more of that or lingered longer as love to know what Prudy and Demelza are thinking. Bored of Ned and his drinking, George's uncle still hasn't learned from, jo from George's grief, which I would have hoped he would have. It seems to be being rushed, and I love the Cornish views and cinematography, but hardly any this series. Sad face. Mm. Uh, Dance Blue Cat says, Brilliant episode, great scenes with Ross, Dwight, and Caroline. Good that Morwenna and Drake have found peace. Had enough of Ned and Tess, though. Um, we did have a question that came up on uh, Facebook um, that I found this morning. Um, and this is really uh, kind of a historical one. Uh, Nancy says, um, I started late on this series, but I love it. Uh, having trouble understanding who the father of Elizabeth's children. She was obviously trying to change both her due dates. <sighs> Girl. 
that is that that is something to ha that's a conversation to have over several cups of tea um but um it, it's intentional that it is um vague and questionable although the television series has made it uh more obvious than the novels uh ever did uh but um you know we all have come to the conclusion that Valentine is Ross's child Ursula, of course, is George's child, and the reason why she was trying to change her due dates was because she was trying to conceal the fact that uh, Ross uh, was Valentine's. So that that's really it in a nutshell. Uh, but uh, you know, if you have any other questions, feel free to uh, pop in and ask. Uh, we we would love to we would love to chat some more. So thanks for your question. Over on Twitter, Tyler M. Daly said, I actually really like this episode. Russ and George in Parliament, Dwight's mic drop moment telling Ross his stupidity, Carolite as a mystery-solving duo, yes! Yet, Tess tried to flirt with Ross, set Namhara on fire, and now is forging money. Demelza, stop giving her chances. <laughs> I think that that's probably going to be happening in the next episode. Uh, Debbie Blackman says, I don't know how it's possible to love Dwight more and more each episode and forget who Ross is, but that's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> Ross who? Uh, yeah, Ross? Ross? Have who? you heard of this, this new show, show called, Ennis? called Ennis? It's so great. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm glad that, that uh, you all were... You know, really much more enthusiastic about the episode than than we than we were, um, because it is Poldark after all. And you know, I think that you know, for those of us that that love the episode and those of us that are still scratching our heads over it, uh, we wouldn't be doing either of those things if we didn't love the show. So, uh, really glad that you guys enjoyed it. Okay, Tumblr time. Let's see. So. Yeah, over on Tumblr, y'all went deep into the Tumblr inbox this week. Um, thanks so much for your amazing responses. Uh, absolutely addicted, Poldark, he said, I think the opening scene with Ross and Demelza summed up this episode for me when Ross said, I think the time has come to return Ned to Honduras. Yas, please. I am very much over this character and storyline, although I like Kitty. She can stay. Uh, couldn't this had been done in three episodes? I am missing Romelza scenes. Where's the Romelza loving? Although I'm very happy to see how solid they are as a couple. I can't help but wish for the lovely closeness Winston wrote of in the later books. Zoe Reads said, initial thoughts. One, if the whole Cornwall thing doesn't work out, Morwenna should market whatever kind of waterproof mascara she uses. That stuff has endured <laughs> torrents of eye-welling, tears, and complete sobbing. In every scene. <laughs> Two. Cracked up at Caroline's blink or your missed it reaction to Dwight's Oh really? Set down a Ross? <laughs> Number three. Are the scripts written in Cornwall speak like the Poldark Twitter account? Love the years and the E's and the knees <laughs> and the ends. They are. I think if you yeah. can buy the scripts yeah. um, in book format and when you read them it's like reading from Winston's <laughs> novels in that you don't know what the fuck they're saying. Yeah. It's it's nuts. Uh let's see. Single Scripture says, uh, this was the worst episode of series five for me. 
Most things irritated me. The wig, John Conan being played by two distinctly different actors, Drake being Drake, <laughs> but that might be the lack of Romelza content talking. The annoyingly short scenes were discussed in last week's podcast, and I really noticed them in this episode. It also felt like it didn't cover much new ground. We didn't need another episode where Ned kept shouting that the king was mad to convince us that he is a loose cannon, as well as an idiot. Drake and Marwenna, <laughs> I know this was supposed to be the emotional turning point in their story, but I'm just not invested in it. I stand with Rita. More Sam, less Drake. Yes! <laughs> I also thought the story was inconsistent. Morwenna's fear of intimacy is not about saying goodbye to her son, rather than being repeatedly raped by Reverend Creepy McCreeperson. And Lady Whitworth is a loving grandma now? Really? Lady, why is that child playing Whitworth? <laughs> it all seemed a bit unnecessary. Dwight and Caroline were the saving grace of this episode. It was good to see them back on form and saving Ross's ass because someone has to. Sorry, rant is over. <laughs> So I keep going, girl. You're on fire. <laughs> the Lady Whitworth uh, abrupt change of character threw me for a sec. But then I thought yeah. about her relationship with her son and how much she worshipped him and licked his butt. So I think there's a possibility <laughs> that now that her son is gone, she has turned that attention on to his son and is now like loving and caring to the point where she's probably going to turn John Conan into a monster. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, as much as we've been just kind of dragging the whole Drake Morwenna storyline thing through um, the the fires of the damned, um, I have to say that um, the scene where um, Elise is with the young boy playing John Conan. You mean one of the two boys playing John Conan? Yeah, one of the two boys playing John Conan. Um, she's such a lovely actress to watch um you know the scene where you know she's saying goodbye um you know and and she says you know thank you for keeping this our little secret you know and and just that 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 sweet little look on her face that she has when when she says that you know even though she's like on the verge of completely breaking down uh it, it was incredibly touching um incredibly touching um and uh as much as i've been ranting about the show um for the last lord knows uh let's see 55 minutes um <laughs> um i i have to say that i really enjoyed the performance that she gave when she was with uh her son so well done elise okay it was beautiful so now over to the anonymouses um, yes that we got it in the ask box uh this show is becoming very tame and aiden said it was the most grown up plenty villains but no love scenes from any of them ross being punched a son and suddenly made him see sense with ned lol too much time spent on ned and tess and not enough from the much loved characters debbie horsfield has actually done what winston graham did in the later books i thought season mm -hmm. five would be about how much about our much loved characters and it's not uh let's see um the next is two tricorns this week 
Loved the girl power this week and the family Christmas scene, but it was too short and the Romelza kiss was cut at the beginning. Sad face. Um, it was okay, but too much time invested on Ned. It made it all about him for six episodes. Not enough on the core to who we all love. Weird because Karen T said it needs to be about them more than anyone else. We needed to see Demelza and the kids uh, kiss and say bye to Ross and Kitty, not wave to an empty carriage. Um, even Drake and Morwenna never kissed. Oh, who cares about Drake <laughs> and Morwenna at this point? Cancel. Oh. Um, <laughs> our last anonymous said, yeah, there was no mention of Elizabeth in episode five of Poldark. He is hoping her <laughs> absence will continue. Exclamation mark, exclamation mark. Hallelujah. <laughs> We finally did it. It took five Uh, hours of the show, but nobody mentioned Elizabeth. Okay, shifting over to email. uh, Jane said, Caroline is a queen. She really came through as the smart, strong, capable woman we know her to be. Finally. Kudos Kudos to Dwight for protecting Ross, even after their falling out. Almost everyone has swallowed the idiot pill. Ross, Jeffrey Charles, Drake... George is back to being a douche-legged. Yes, he has been. Um, why Morwenna thinks... Why does Morwenna think she's invisible? <laughs> you know when she's hiding behind the, the sparse Oh, bush. God, yes. Yeah, it's like... Yeah, <laughs> You're not, not wearing the you know, invisibility unless you, cloak. Unless you've got an... Inv- <laughs> honey. Um, she's disappointed that Morwenna's problems caused by the nightly rape of Ozzy are now resolved by grieving for John Conan. I would think these are two distinct and separate issues. I am sorry that an opportunity to explore this series' mental and physical issues surrounding marital rape were ignored. A big cop-out. Please hang Ned now. Punching Ross? Really? Ross has no response since when? The only punch Ross ever took without a response was the one he deserved from Demelza. Hmm... Well, we let's not go down that road. Uh, so glad Dwight spoke truth to Ross. Finally, Ross continues to be the idiot. Why is he so fucking blind? After that punch, I would have turned Ned in myself. Glad that Demelza took matters into her own hands. I like that they mentioned book characters like Sally Chiloff. I do wish she took it to Tess and Jacka then and there, though. Obviously set up for next episodes. I wish TV Demelza didn't doubt her own wisdom and power. When Demelza wearing, or was Demelza wearing her red dress that was wet on the bottom and holding her shoes a call back to season two, or am I reading too much into it? <laughs> I hadn't even thought about that. Um, Rebecca Front as Lady Whitworth did a lot of fabulous acting with very little to work with this whole episode. Um, to work with this whole episode felt like a middle of the season filler and set up for the finale. What happened to Romelza? Question mark. And a prison break? Again, this is total retread territory. Ross should volunteer to hang Ned himself. Ooh, and just get it get done with it. Um, since when did Ross lose his ability and instincts to read people? A uh, total break from characterization from the show and the books. Theft from the mine. I believe it was mentioned in one of the later books as having happened just after Bella was born when Ross was away. I'm sure Tess will be involved in this too. Love Demelza's in bed with the kids singing Rose love song to them. The whole family missing idiot Ross. 
<laughs> uh, glad we got a time reference. Uh, we are now at the beginning of 1801. Poldark time has a strange flow to it. Thank you both again for all your hard work. Poldark was just another show until I listened to your podcasts and became a true Poldark believer. I hope we can do a book club uh, for the last set of novels. Thank you. Our next email was from Lisa. First, I want to tell you that I love your podcast and want to thank you for your dedication and hard work. I've been listening from the beginning and love hearing your opinions and the opinions of others. Oh, why is everyone being nice? <laughs> I know. So I got I know. Um, So about episode five. First, I'll start with what I liked. Demelza. Demelza with her children. Demelza the boss. Demelza and Sam. Zaki being com- complimentary of Demelza. Pasco in Demelza. Also, I liked <laughs> Caroline having something to do other than hold Horace and look pretty. Dwight and Caroline That's... working together to keep Ross out of trouble was a great thing. However, there were things of which I had problems. First, Ned, can I just say that I am frustrated with the fact that so much of his last series has been focused on this storyline and he's not even likable. I don't know if he was acting actually like this or if it was the way he is being characterized in the series but there are other characters that have been lacking in storylines and screen time and it's frustrating and next week i'm sure we'll be expected to feel sorry for him even knowing what happens to him i'm not sure i will be able to accomplish that emotion for this character maybe we'll see Next, Morwen is being cured of her trauma over being raped and abused by her first husband by saying goodbye to her son. Really didn't make any sense at all. And what can I say about the kidnapping? Did someone really have to point out to Drake that he and Morwenna couldn't stay in stall in stall with her son? Yes, he's that stupid. Yeah. And finally, I am astounded by the lack of Romelza scenes in this episode. I get it. He's returning to London and she's staying in Cornwall. However, was there not a way to edit the first part of the episode to give us a little more of them? We got a short glimpse of them walking along the cliffs and the scene at the table. Did we need the crashing waves and the scenes of the cliffs? Did we need to see the guy with the bit, with the bird? Yes, we did. That was important. We didn't yes. even see Ross say goodbye to his family. The carriage was moving away already. Overall, I guess I will give this episode three tricorns. Thanks again for everything, ladies. A Polduck fan in Oklahoma. Oh, thank you. Let's see. The other Michelle. Hello there. Um, I cannot believe I, that I am saying this, but for the most part, I found this episode boring. Caroline and Dwight's scenes were the saving grace. Sam and Demelza's scenes were also good. Tired of Ned, Ross making speeches that no one listens to, Valentine shooting knowing looks at Ross. Over it. <laughs> Demelza being the only person in Cornwall with common sense, investigative skills, authority. Where are the constables when you need them? Also tired of Drake doing stupid-ass stuff. Snidely, McWarleggan, and company, and no meaningful Ross and Demelza scenes of any kind. Did not buy the resolution of Marwenna Drake's storyline that she could not sleep with Drake because she missed her son. What? I mean, seriously, What? That she was so traumatized by Ozzy, absolutely, but this resolution had no setup and does not make any sense. I almost feel that Ms. Horsefield was throwing various plotline developments at the viewers to end tired plotlines and move story along, but I cannot see the end game. It may be there, but I don't see it yet. Thanks, All Michelle. Great emails. Thanks, everyone who got in contact. 
Can we wig talk? Can we wig talk? Talk about where it's growing. Yes. Okay, so when Ross got hit in the face, it was like one of the few times I stopped looking at his hideous hair and I looked at his fucked up nose. By the yes. way, I noticed on rewatch when he was coming out of the pub, he also had a cut on his brow. How did Ned manage that? <laughs> Ned has elbows of doom. <laughs> Can we petition for Bross to wear a hat at all times, please? Um, CGI it in for the last few episodes if we have to. Come on, Mammoth Screen, do it. <laughs> yeah, I and you know I think that they did. They really did a good job with the um, the makeup uh, to get Ross's face all jacked up. I'm, I thought that they did a really good job. Shame about the hair. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, so uh, let's look ahead at the next episode, shall we? Here's the trailer. Someone stealing our ore. Must it not be someone with the knowledge of the mine? One of our own. The crown should honor him instead of attempting to cover up its mistreatment of him by inventing crimes he did not commit. You will thank me for providing you with a mate that matches your station. I'll get you out of there, girl. Break him from the jail. You're insane. Shall we? Oh, God. Oh, no. Another prison break. <laughs> uh, the description from Radio Times, uh, Ross throws himself into fighting for Ned's liberty as George prepares to marry Cecily and finalize his deal with Hanson and Merceron. Jeffrey Charles is forced to make a desperate plan to elope with Cecily before the wedding, and Demelza uncovers a theft at the mine. Sam's growing attachment to Rosina comes under threat by Tess's claim to Ugh. seek a purer life. And with Ned's trial looming large and the odds stacked against them, Ross pleads for Dwight's help in a daring attempt to save his friend. None of that oh, sounds like something God. my eyes want to watch, but we'll we will see. I don't know. It's, it sounds like Sam's going to be getting some uh, some meat to chew on this week. Don't get your hopes up. It will take up about roughly four minutes of the show. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, um, you'll get a storyline one day. <laughs> one day, one day. Um, what are you looking forward to in next week's episode? I suppose watching Ned hang. <laughs> <laughs> God, I'm over this mask. Can this storyline end already? It's already sucked the joy out of the season. I never thought when it started that we would be here talking about episode <sighs> six, and this man would still be sucking. Yeah, I think that's my highlight as well. I mean, I'm really completely ready for him to go away. Um, uh, and poor, poor Kitty. I know that it's going to be heartbreaking for her uh, to have this happen. Uh, but uh, yeah, um, let's see. Um, and I'm looking forward to Dwight laughing in Ross's face <laughs> over another jailbreak. I don't know if that's exactly going to happen, but... Um, I am praying that it does because enough with the tropes already, okay? So we have another new design up on our merch store. We do? Yeah, I followed through and made a St. Elizabeth t-shirt. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Again, you can get it as a sticker or a mug or many different articles of clothing. If you are interested, then head on over to www.tpublic.com forward slash user forward slash Poldark fancast 
Funds from the store help cover hosting costs for the podcast, so we would really appreciate the support. And the t-shirt is on sale for the next 36 hours. So get in there and get those discounts. Nice, nice. And now it's time for... Poldark News! Poldark News! Um, official Poldark is hosting a live Q&A on Facebook Live with Debbie Horsfield and Jack Farthing this Friday at 5.30 GMT. So get your questions in. Woot! We hope that wasn't the big announcement that they told us about because that's... Uh, seriously, because, you know, we're still waiting for our surprise. That better not be it. <laughs> and I'm still hoping that it is a Christmas episode. Poldark card question time. Oh, um, okay. Pick a number between one and three. Uh, I'm going to go with two. On the night of the smuggling ambush, Captain McNeil comes looking for Ross. Where does Demelza say he is? A. St. Ives. B. Asleep in bed. Or C. Visiting Trenworth. St. Ives. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I was like, yeah, asleep in bed? Uh, no. 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 <laughs> Elizabeth teaches Demelza how to dance and curtsy. True or false? No. False. False. It it's is Verity. Verity. Queen Verity. She does yes. all the hard work. Um, I miss Verity. Cardew is the country home of which family? Warligan. Yes. Three uh-huh. out of three. Yes. We did it. <laughs> it's the country home of the Warligans, which apparently is sitting... Um, all shrouded in uh, white fabric and everything because they've decamped to trend with. I don't understand. Has has that ever existed in the show? Or what, Cardew? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I thought we were uh, always in their Truro house, but... I thought I... Uh, Cardew was... Um... Is that the one with the pink walls? Yes. Oh, I thought that was in Truro. Because everything no. on the show is for some reason in Truro. No, no. Cardew's the one with the pink walls where Elizabeth goes, um, you know, what, like a month and a half after um, Frances died. Uh, you know, she goes, she went with her hair done in this huge, massive, frightening wig thing. Oh, yeah. To George's Christmas party. That was a mess of a hair. Anyway. <laughs> it sure was. That's all from us this time, but we'll be back next week recapping and discussing episode 506. Until then, follow us on social media where we keep you guys up to date with new promotional photos, cast interviews, and other general news. We are at Poldark Fancast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you'd like to be read out in the inbox section then email us at poldockfancast at gmail.com or go to our message page on tumblr and remember you can now listen to us on spotify so follow us on there or wherever you listen to podcasts okay thank you for listening and we will see you next time bye bye bye
Você me sou. 